welcome back to Kind Mind. Thank you for listening and for supporting however you can, either on Patreon or by subscribing and sharing or writing a review of this show or rating it five stars. All means a lot to me. And my name is Todd. I'll be your guide today through six levels of validation, the theme of this episode. But before we take off, just a few introductory notes here. We normally have a Kind Mind gathering on the last Tuesday of every month, and we've done that for seven years now. But I have some scheduling conflicts this year, and we have moved that to the last Wednesday of the month at the Homestead, 1854, in Plano, Illinois. So If you are on the email list, you'll always get the details of each of those and other events. That's michaeltodfink.com. Or if you're a Patreon member, you'll also get the Zoom link in case you would like to join virtually. And that's where we record these episodes. So we met last week, Wednesday the 25th, in the library of the homestead. It was really lovely. And this is going to be the 87th episode, I believe. So that means we'll probably reach the 100th episode sometime this year. And that's meaningful for me. I'm super grateful that we've been able to create so much content together. I want to do something special on the show. If you have any suggestions, let me know. And also want to give a gift to those who are supporting on Patreon, which you can do for as little as $5 a month. So if you have any ideas, let me know. You can let me know there. But we'll probably also have some kind of Patreon party as well. And you can also connect with me on the third Sunday of each month in the morning through the Spiritual Speakeasy community. And the theme for the whole year is kindness. So I'll be joining in the conversation once a month to talk about my thoughts on kindness and to initiate a dialogue. So you can find more information about that on my site or theirs as well. And now, validation means to confirm or authenticate and allows people to feel heard and respected. So I also do a version of this episode as a seminar or presentation for organizations and companies or universities and other schools. So if that's something that's of interest to you and your team for perhaps your diversity and equity and inclusion wellness programming, you can let me know. I've really enjoyed engaging with teams on this topic. The six levels of validation refer to interpersonal effectiveness, which is part of dialectical behavioral therapy. And the goal is to attain radical genuineness in relationships. So it's um, a way of relating non-hierarchically, more like peers. And studies have shown that In organizations, when there's less power imbalances and people can just communicate as one person to another without leading with their title. And some some companies choose not to have titles included in communications. And people come to understand what people's responsibilities are and that they're all part of a of one team or one mission. And it shows that that there can be more cohesion. But this also applies to our personal relationships and partnerships. But you can't just easily jump to that because we have different barriers and obstacles and implicit bias and in-group bias that gets talked about in this episode. I never really know how I'm going to title these episodes until I'm in the final edit or mastering stage of the audio. So I hope you like the titles because I think They're almost as fun for me to think about as the episode itself. You may have also sensed that the title is a throwback to some In Excess lyrics, if you remember that band from the 80s and 90s, before the tragic suicide of the lead singer, Michael Hutchins. But I don't know why I I referenced that. It's just, I think, this word validate rhymes with the lyrics in that song. The song's called Mediate. Every uh, lyric kind of ends with that rhyme, which I thought was validate, alleviate, try not to hate. But it's mediate, alleviate, try not to hate. Actually, validate never even 
occurs in the lyrics, but I think it would work in that spot. So validate, alleviate, try not to hate. Because validation makes us stronger. It can reduce the primacy of personal agency, which is where, which is what prompts us to launch blame. And that causes people's survival instincts to kick in fight or flight, defensiveness or avoidance, or freeze, fight, flight, freeze. And then a person shuts down. So none of those responses allow for good faith interaction and progress. And validation takes into account the ecology of the human being, like a human plant. We don't blame a flower for not growing well. We look at all of the levels of interdependence. And if we are to transform another, we must improve the broader environment and change the status quo. It's very easy to denounce the wrongdoer, but it requires a lot more engagement and effort and hope to reform the conditions that contribute to those wrong calibrations or manifestations. In the movie Enter the Dragon, starring Bruce Lee, there's a scene where the teacher is testing Bruce Lee, the student, and asks, what is the highest technique you hope to achieve? And Lee responds, to have no technique. The teacher says, very good. And then follows that up with the question, what are your thoughts when facing an opponent? And Lee responds, there is no opponent. The teacher inquires further, and why is that? And Lee responds, because the word I does not exist. And that just sounded like some mystical magic when I was a kid, but revisiting that scene and thinking about validation and exploring the ecology of human behavior, it becomes evident that we're all interconnected, interrelated. Or as John Muir said, you can't study and pull on one thing without tugging on the whole universe. And finally, there is some bonus content to this episode for those of you on Patreon. There you will find the question and answer session from this gathering. And it concludes with a guided meditation. Thought all of that would make this episode too long. So those of you who, who are Patreon members, you can find it there. Patreon.com forward slash kindmind. The short guided meditation at the end is designed to help people be able to validate their own feelings and to validate and hold space for somebody in your life that might be difficult. But I encourage you to pick somebody, at least when you try it for the first time, who's not too triggering for you. So maybe somebody you don't know as well, but it's still hard to be with them or hard to work with them. And then you can build upon this foundation. And may we continue to widen our sense of compassion and either remove the in-group bias or widen it so broadly until all our relations. Thank you again and look forward to connecting with you soon. I'll tell you a short story from ancient India about interdependence. In a clearing deep in the forest, the trees were having a pre-dawn discussion. Jamun, one of the trees, said to the group, You know, animals come and rest in our shade all the time, but then they leave a mess behind. And the smell on some days is unbearable. They show almost no concern for us. That's because we're silent, said Sal, another tree. And goes on to add, but I've had enough. 
I made up my mind to drive away any animal that comes here. Hey, that may not be a wise thing to do, said People. People was the oldest and wisest and biggest tree in that part of the forest. He went on, the animals, yes, they can be a nuisance. I agree. But they also serve a useful purpose. We are all interdependent. The trees, the animals, the humans. I'm sorry, interrupted Sal. I've got great respect for you people and for your views. But in this matter, I can't listen to anyone else. I'm putting my foot down when I say I won't allow any animals here anymore. And true to his word, when a leopard came to rest in the shade the next day, Sal began to shake violently from side to side. And because the animals are very superstitious, the leopard was terrified. And frightened out of his wits, he jumped up and ran away. For good. Sal drove away all the animals that came to the clearing that day in that manner, and in the days that followed, until in the course of time, those animals stopped coming to that part of the forest altogether. And Sal became the great hero, especially to the younger trees in the forest, and even some of the older ones. And they began bowing to Sal, where they used to bow to people, and they would do this when people was not looking. Then one day, two woodcutters came to the clearing. Oh no, it's men, gasped Sal. Why in the world have they come here? They've never come here before. We've only heard of them, but they've never come. And then people said, if they've never come here before, it was because they were afraid of the animals. Now that the animals are gone, and the absence of the leopard, the absence of the tiger, it has emboldened the man. Then Sal began to tremble with fear, and for good reason. Because it was the first tree the woodcutters chopped down. And that's the end of the story. Now keep in mind that that was an ancient tale. So it was much before the modernization and the Industrial Revolution. So at that time, you could uh, understand the, how prevalent the philosophy of interdependence would be. People would really know you need the animal, you need the harvest, you need the sun, you need the rain. It's your own life. The other night, I was talking to my brother on the phone. He's been traveling out in New Mexico with his girlfriend. We were just kind of talking about how the older we get, the more patterns we see in ourselves and the more life is like a spiral. We come back to familiar experiences, but with a different insight. And we got kind of philosophical talking about time and whether or not it's real. And something reminded me of this Mayan greeting in La Quech. And I was about to tell him about this and its meaning. And he said, hold on for a second. He stepped away and I hear him talking to somebody. He comes back and he's like, you won't believe it. I just met a man in the parking lot here and he looks exactly like me, only older. We're just the same, mannerisms the same. And we greeted each other and there was just like a knowing between us that I'm a younger version of him. He's like, and it's so strange and bizarre given that we were just talking about maybe time's not real and, and that there's a lot more interconnectivity than, than we may realize. And, and then he goes on to, to ask, so what were you going to tell me? And I explain that this saying, this philosophy and greeting in the Mayan tradition, as far as I know, in La Quech, means I am another yourself. <laughs> and it was so, so timely. Now I've been thinking about that saying as I contemplate ways of healing 
and any hope for coming together and building unity in these times. And so I remembered that greeting and others like Namaste, which many people are familiar with now in the world, the Indian greeting, and we say it sometimes in yoga studios. Namaste is a compound word. You have Namaskar, which is bowing, and Te, which is you. The literal translation is bowing to you, but bowing was reserved for reverence of divinity. And so the the conventional meaning is that I'm bowing to the divinity in you. But another way to think of it is you are me and I am you. This is also reflected in the word Ubuntu from southern parts of Africa. I think it's also a greeting and means something like, I am because of you. And I once heard Nelson Mandela uh, speaking in a video about its cultural significance when he was younger. He said, in the old days, a traveler didn't have to ask for water or for food when they came through the village because of Ubuntu, because it was yourself, in a sense, coming coming to you in the external form. Different cultures around the world and different wisdom traditions had this language around interdependence. And so I think that if there is hope for healing, healing ourselves, but also healing our relationships, healing our communities and our societies, it would be through validation, which through deeper levels leads us to the realization of interdependence. Reminds me of um, how we treat other types of medical conditions. And those of you who are in work in medicine, you may know that in cancer, for instance, you would reserve surgery and the most aggressive interventions for later stages. So serious surgery, major surgery, uh, and radiation and, and chemotherapy is sort of a later resort because it harms the patient. To perform any surgery is a, is a trauma to the body. And sometimes when I see fundraisers for families suffering with cancer and saying fuck cancer it reminds me that we sort of take that attitude also with uh, with our problems in the world in life and we see it as something totally other than ourselves. and I think in we have the word for that now in modern psychology othering we tend to have this sense that I am not that, I am not like that, I would not be like that. And then there's something invasive about these conditions, even though with cancer, it is our own cells. So when we have this attitude that this person is a pain in my ass or a pain in my neck, I think that ought to be deliberated on and felt in a deeper way that the pain that's outside myself is actually inside myself in some way, like in Ubuntu, in Inlakech, and Namaste. So I'd like to uh, begin with this poem by Luis Valdez about that Mayan greeting. He was a Mexican-American playwright and poet. It's a very simple poem, but it's very beautiful. I'll read it in Spanish and translate it at the same time. Tu eres mi otro yo. You are my other me. Si te hago daño a ti. If I do harm to you, me hago daño a mi mismo. I do harm to myself. Si te amo y respeto. If I love and respect you, me amo y respeto yo. I love and respect myself. So that's going to be the overall message of tonight about validation. And I'll share some tools to go deeper into validation wherever it's possible. With others, with your relationships, with your family, with the difficult people in your life, but ultimately with yourself. 
to aid in your own spiritual growth. You may know exactly what it feels like to be invalidated, to be denied your true experience. And I see this a lot in healthcare, especially when I've worked at the hospital with uh, psychiatric patients. Because mental health tends to be dealt with differently from a legal standpoint, from an insurance standpoint. Even the, the saying mental health probably deepens that division. You know, one day it ought to just be health, all health. But there are actually different fundings for mental health versus what would be considered medical health. And all of that contributes to stigma. And so there's a, still a whole lot of misunderstanding about these conditions and their, counter, their physical counterparts in neurobiology. So patients will experience invalidation all the time. Family members, people who actually love, love them and care about them may say things like, you have dot dot dot, or at least dot dot dot, and so why dot dot dot. At least you have people who love you. At least you live in a free country. At least you have your physical health, like you have two arms and two legs. So why can't you be happy? And it's just very different than we would, than the way we would treat people with other understood medical conditions, even though those medical conditions were also stigmatized before we understood them, whether it was diabetes, cancer, or thyroid disease. Because when you're sick, it affects the whole person. So validation then is the confirmation that a person's experience is authentic for them, that their perspective forms their, uh, their truth. And when we can do our best to be with that and to allow for that and meet them in that space or hold space for that, there's so much potential for transformation. When there's the othering and the stigma, then people close down and become more defensive and the risk of violence is greater. I had an interesting and evocative ordinary experience yesterday stretching my back on the chair in my office. I was leaning back all the way till my head was upside down. And I've had this experience many times, but this time I fully understood that my perspective was totally different. What would ordinarily be to the right of my face is now perceived to be the left of my face, even though my position in space is the same, right? If I take my head and I turn it upside down, I haven't gone anywhere else in the room. I'm not even looking in a different direction. I'm still looking that way. But now when my head goes upside down, what is above feels below. Therefore, what is right of my face appears as left. So what is true? Is what's to the right of my face truly left? Or is it still right? Or could both be somewhat true? And like this, it dawned on me that with the, you know, the advent of our understanding of intersectionality where the human condition is multidimensional. A person has their experiences as a person with this body, this skin color, this ethnicity, this race, uh, this education, this religion, this culture, this family, this gender, this orientation. And, um, and sometimes when there are differences between us and another, we tend to encapsulate someone like that as totally different than us. And, and therefore we can justify not liking them, even wishing harm upon them, and totally denying the interdependence 
and missing the message altogether of the wisdom of our ancestors, the elders of the earth, our predecessors, may have seen more interconnectivity and may have been able to pass that down generation to generation. But, you know, as we have built up technology and spread quickly and connected all over the world rapidly, and then science and technology has kind of supplanted mythology and some of the wisdom traditions, I think what, what's getting lost in that transition and that mix is the, the wisdom of interdependence. If you think of a group of people in a boat staying in their own seat on the boat and somebody pulls out a drill and starts to drill underneath his seat and somebody else says, what are you doing? And he says, mind your own business. This is my seat. I'm not intruding in your space, so leave me alone. Well, you know, in the, in the wisdom of, of these philosophies, we understand that he's doing it to us, right? Because we're all going to sink. And that's the predicament we find ourselves in with the environment, with the planet. This othering, in-group, out-group bias was studied in a famous experiment in 1953 by social psychologist Sharif. And it came like one year before Lord of the Flies, but it kind of predicted Lord of the Flies, if you remember that that reading in, in high school, about the realistic theory of, of group conflict. So in this experiment, Sharif was studying 22 boys at a summer camp at Robber's Cave. So it's known as the Robber's Cave Experiment. And he picked this group of boys in a summer camp because for the most part, they belonged to one group. They're as similar as could be on the surface. They were all 11 to 12. They were all white. They were all middle class. And he randomly divided them into two groups of 11. The way the experiment was carried out Today, in retrospect, is it's known to be a pretty unethical experiment, but he would have never got these results if he if the, the kids were all privy to, to what they were studying. So the researchers posed as camp counselors, and after dividing these two groups, the, the boys into two groups, they set out a series of challenges and competitions between the groups. And gradually, they reduced the resources. So they're competing for resources and food. And so sometimes one group, when they lose, they have to wait or they go a little hungrier for longer. And the conflict was rising. And sure enough, it led to um, aggressive behavior. And eventually, somebody from one, from one group burns the, the flag of the other group. And eventually, there was violence. But... What we continue to draw upon today from that experiment was in the interview questions with the boys from both sides, there was a consistent perception that the boys in the other group had negative stereotypes and that the the traits and the qualities of the other boys in their group, they overestimated their positive qualities and saw their strengths and overlooked their flaws and weaknesses. And it wasn't until the researchers presented a common conflict that the boys actually grew out of this or matured beyond this. And the conflict was there was a semi-truck stuck in the mud that was bringing food for the weak. So unless they could get it out together, they weren't, they weren't going to be able to eat. And in this way, the boys came together, they, they ultimately put aside their differences, devised a strategy with rocks to, to pull the truck out, and then there was more harmony. To this day, we see that tendency when there's othering to be able to define another person based on what we don't like about them, and really to justify uh, more and more negativity projected onto them all the way up to control, to domination, to violence. And so I present this today as 
tools personally for you to work on your own healing in your families and your communities and also for us to start a conversation about how we might hold space for each other to be able to convalesce. Convalesce shares the root of validation. The root is val, V-A-L, val. And convalesce is an encoative verb which leads to something better. Convalesce means to come together and become better after sickness. In the way that when we sprain our ankle or break our bone, at least when you're younger, it's going to be stronger, depending on the break, if it's not too severe, it's going to be stronger than before the injury. Also, this root, val, V-A-L, is made into a verb in Latin, valere, which is to be strong. So convalesce is the initiation of becoming strong. So when we say validate, we're talking about strength, valor, valiant, valence. These are words that denote power. It's also evolved into Germanic lang- languages, vald, vald, power, strength. This is the real cause for hope and the uh, hidden opportunity in all our discord that because of the sickness, we have a chance to grow stronger than we ever were as a, not just as a society, but as an earth, as the inhabitants of this planet, as expressions of the universe. As I share these stages for deeper levels of validation and how to go deeper, I'd like you to reflect on Times you felt truly validated, what that was like, or who that was with, and times you felt invalidated. This first level of validation, be present. It means to hold space for another. And there's a difference between holding space and spacing out. I've realized this about myself because I I have to edit these episodes or these recordings and there are many question and answer sessions in a lot of my talks and so I only have that moment to do the best I can to not only hear the words in your question but also to try to take in the true concern which goes beyond words which we'll we'll get to in a moment here with the validation and I've realized when I'm editing that I heard it wrong. So many times I recognize my own mistake, my lack of attention, because there are limits with attention and it's a skill. If there's a way for you to test it or to record a conversation, you may find that like the national average, we interrupt others in conversation within 17 seconds. So if you're interrupting somebody, doesn't that mean we're not holding space anymore? We're now forcing ourselves into their mental space. Does that make sense? Because if I'm holding space in the beginning of validation, that means I have to be open. I have to create the space. I have to defend the space even from my own mental intrusions. So this is an art, and this first level of validation isn't something that we can just casually do. We have to practice it, we have to aspire to it. And mindfulness can help us get better at being able to be present and pay attention. You know what it's like when a person says they're listening, but they're looking away, or the person's playing a video game and you're like, can you put that, th- put that down? And they're telling you, no, I can do both. You already feel invalidated because there's no space for you. There's no emotional space. So this practice creates a non-judgment zone and an aura of safety. And this can be difficult for some people if you already have this person othered. 
If you've already fully defined them, if you've already bound them to their worst statement, to their mistake, and in that sense, we deny them the opportunity to grow. It's like a plant that we keep around us, but we won't let it get the sunlight or we won't let it have room to, to grow up. And then we blame that plant. So part of the holding space is allowing for a person to be human, to be evolving, to be maturing, to be growing. And it can help us in this moment to remember that many of the things we don't like, we once were. You think about the whole evolution of your ethic, of your politic. Has it not changed a lot? And so we ought to allow that when we're holding space, that this is the cross-section of this human this person in time and space. This is not the whole person. Life is a process. Life is an unfolding. So to allow for that is compassionate. So we have to improve our attention. We have to improve our intention. We have to try not to interrupt and also try not to dissociate, like leave that space. And if we're mentally, and if we're not ready for that, then there's no point in trying to fake it. I think it would be better to have the assertive language that expresses why we're not prepared to do it and when we might be or or why we can't and what we would need to do for ourselves before we could be ready to hold that space for another. So listen, observe, and be aware. Remain present. The second level is reflect back. Now, it's our responsibility after a person opens up or expresses themselves. Now it's our job when we have the opportunity to seek clarity. If we can reflect back what was shared with us and as an attempt to clarify in our own words, not just regurgitate what somebody said, but say it in our own way. It sounds like it was like this for you. But allow for yourself to be corrected. You're trying in this level of validation, you're trying to understand deeper. You're not trying to convince the other person that you get them. You're trying to get them. So take the posture of complementarity while you're doing this. Meaning when somebody is sharing your receiving, make your posture that of receptivity when you're reflecting back, have that expressed in the gestures that you use, in the expressions of your face, that there is a free exchange, that there's a care in the way that uh, you're meeting them. And you'll find that so much, when you practice this, so much is filtered out by our own biases, by our in-group and out-group and implicit bias. And this is an opportunity for us to to be educated on what it's like to be this person, what it's like to be our friend, what it's like to be an associate, a collaborator, a lover, a partner. Because this is never ending. In the love language, the five love languages, it's presented kind of simply. We talked about this before that somebody's love language is physical touch. Well, you ought to be touching them enough, you know, and being affectionate enough. But what if that is triggering for somebody? What if that person has, uh, has trauma, has a physical or sexual trauma in their past? Then it's not as simple as just speaking their love language, and we'll, we'll come to that more in a second. So the, the third stage of this is empathize. Now, when you're empathizing with somebody else, you're trying to put yourself in their shoes. Again, this isn't about figuring out if they're right. If they have a right to think the way that they think, to believe what they believe. This Netflix documentary, Keep Sweet, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, that documentary about... uh, fundamentalist Mormon church in Utah and Colorado and Texas and it's just so sad to see I saw it recently 
how the women were treated by the powerful men and, and the prophet, so-called prophet of the cult. And so sad that this story is, has been repeated over and over. Not this specific story. This men, power, sexually abusing people with less power. Anyways, imagine if, if you've seen it, if you were to just encounter one of the women from the FLDS and get into a conflict with their beliefs. It would be real easy to other them, like, like you're crazy for thinking that. But then when you see this documentary, you get to step outside of any kind of personal experience you might have with one of these believers. And you see how a child is brainwashed from birth. And if you put yourself in their shoes, well, if you were brainwashed from birth in this cult, you really think you would get to keep your beliefs and your perspective and your insight into their ways? When uh, the SWAT team was coming to rescue these young girls who were being abused, they saw them as evil Gentiles and devils in disguise and tried to fight off their liberators. It sounds and seems, you know, so absurd. But when you see the, the whole transformation, you can basically empathize with it. And you can feel a certain amount of compassion and also relief that that that's not our condition. Like, but everybody has that, you know, and everybody you know, everybody thinks that they wouldn't believe the things other people believe just when they meet them. But they don't necessarily think that when they see the full story, right? And if you think that, you know, you're too mentally strong for a cult, we're probably somewhere on the spectrum, you know, of uh, uh, cultish, with uh, with whatever ideology it may be. When I think of life in the church, growing up in the church and and going to school in the church, there's a hierarchy, there's a power structure. There's a, a papal head who is infallible. You know, imagine if what we believe in the Catholic Church, I'm talking about my cultural background, religious cultural background, imagine if that was only a hundred of us. You know, it, it would look pretty strange to everybody else. So th there, there are so many opportunities for empathy if we're willing to put ourselves in the other's shoes. And to do that, we can notice what the experience is of another person. We have sadness, like they have sadness. We don't have to worry so much in this level of validation if we agree that they should be sad or not, or that they should be acting out their sadness or bitterness or anger in the way that they are. Only that we, too, know what being hurt is like. We, too, have been confused. We, too, have been disappointed. We also have had our hearts broken, right? So in this way, we uh, remove the othering and we start to um, recognize the unity, the humanity between us. Acknowledge the nonverbals in this level because so much is communicated through the person's look, through their eyes, through the movement of their body. And they may be telling you a lot more. And you can reach out with kindness to be there for them in that moment. And if it's safe, you can say things like, you know, it seems like this might be hard to talk about, but I'm here for you. Or if there's anything more stressful, I know you're saying you're fine and this doesn't bother you. But if there's more that you want to share, I'm ready to listen, you know, because you're recognizing that maybe their body's trembling or a tear is welling up in their eye. Do not try to one-up people in this level of validation. Sometimes, and, and we'll get to that place where later where it's meaningful to share what resonates or what we relate to, but only in a way that brings support and unity. Sometimes people, and I'm sure you know people like this, you try to talk about something and they one-up you on it. Well, I've, I've been through worse. Or if you think that was bad. And so then you feel invalidated, right? Because you either feel like 
you're not being acknowledged and heard for your authentic experience, or what you've experienced has just been minimized because it's compared to an experience that this person went through that that they think trumps yours. And so then we miss an opportunity for connection. In the fourth level, we have understand a person's history, understand more about intersectionality and their biology. So here in this level, this is not going to be possible with everyone. I can't necessarily do this with my coworkers or strangers, but with some people I can. And it's amazing how some partners even don't get to this level of validation. They don't get to a point where they really understand the constitution of their partner, the trauma of their partner. So one of the new love languages is understanding our partner's trauma. Then it's not as simple as, hey, my love language is physical touch, or my love language is words of affirmation. Well, when you understand your partner's history or your partner's trauma and you learn that one of their parents wasn't ever emotionally present, they just used words of affirmation to pacify them. Or a person was physically harmed by a loved one, so they're immediately triggered or feel unsafe when there's affection. Then you can start to translate the love language. And sometimes people even have a love language because of trauma. I mean, imagine in a perfect world where there's no trauma. Well, then words of affirmation would be words of affirmation. Physical touch, physical affection would only be affection, would only be consenting, mutual, loving gestures. Gifts would not be bribes. Gifts would be gifts, right? Acts of service would not be an attempt to get what you want. So like this, people can start to understand their loved ones, their partners in a deeper way. And you know, this is why long-term relationships can be so beautiful. I've read that if you love variety or you need variety or you get bored easily, then then stay in one relationship. And if you like routine, then be single, date a lot of people. And that sounds con- contradictive, but what it means is that when when you're single and you're dating, and you take a step back, you see that the whole process just keeps repeating itself. You have to start your story over, use the same patterns to get to know somebody, and it's just repeat, repeat, repeat. But when you go deeper in a friendship or in a romantic relationship or in a partnership, there's more and more to explore. You don't have to keep going over the same old ground. And it's it's not just romance. I'm you know, talking about life. I'm talking about brotherhood, sisterhood, uh, friendship. Then we come to the intersectionality piece again with this. And it means you get to know that the person is not just a man not just a woman, not just a Catholic, not just a Buddhist, not just a Hindu, not just uh, a Muslim, not just a Democrat, not just a conservative, but multi, a multi-dimensional being and an expression of the whole. Get to know these dimensions. Get to know when it's safe to do so. Get to know a person's preferences, orientation, ethnicity, cultural background. And this is where uh, travel and cultural exchanges really expand our capacity for validation. When you travel and you become the other, it really changes your perspective. When you're the other, you know, and if you've never had that experience, you know, like somebody like me, that was that was an awakening. That was a, a, a social enlightenment for me to travel the world, to spend months in India, you know, to feel like my skin color must stand out. My hair, my size, my build in the villages of India 
I, it felt uh, so different than I ever did in you know in Indiana, Illinois, California, places like that that I was familiar with or going to school at Georgetown. So it was an opportunity for for me to turn my head upside down and recognize that it's not always the way it seems. Health also. You know, we have wealth inequality and we have health inequality. And we don't always know what a person's health is. We don't know what amount of pain, uh, physical pain a person is in just, just by looking at him necessarily. We don't always realize how much that could inform what they say, what they do, what they value in that moment, what they can focus on, what they can pay attention to, what they can process intellectually. The fifth one, level five, in dialectical behavioral therapy and a lot of psychotherapies, they call this radical genuineness. In most therapies, this is the final stage or final depth of validation in a relationship or between a therapist and a client, but they put it as six. So I merged some of these together before, and the radical genuineness means that I can be authentic now and see this other person as equal. That doesn't mean you like what they believe or you agree what they believe. That means you don't think you're better than them. You don't see them as fundamentally inferior to you because of the othering. You respect that they are part of the larger system. Like the cell that, that is in our body, uh, or the inflammation that's in my joints. I don't see it as something anymore that I have to defeat. You know, there are, there are aggressive ways to defeat it, but it diminishes me as a whole person, I found in my recovery. When I change myself, it takes more time, but I can make long-term holistic progress. So in radical genuineness, I get to share, I get to be myself, I get to enjoy that equality by extending that equality to the other person, by no longer seeing them as something so other than me. Just like me, they have a body, they were a child, they were vulnerable, they want to be understood and be healthy and be happy and probably be loved and have relationships that matter, right? So I grow into this validation to the point where um, a, a kind of genuine spirit emerges, not emerges, is revealed. And then the, the deepest stage, this is where I depart from the conventional therapy. I, I would call the, the, this final stage interdependence. So realize interdependence in the deepest level of validation. It's, a, it's like a mystical experience. Another way to think of this is uh, from a theory from Chilean biologists Maturana and Varela called autopoiesis. Autopoiesis means that a system generates itself. My body makes its own cells. And yet when I'm sick, I talk about, I talk about it as totally invasive even though I regenerate. And so it's not just external, internal. And then when you scale it from there, there are other levels to this where there is autopoiesis in the society, in the community, and perhaps the universe is an autopoietic system that is expressing itself to all of us that we're all like cells in the body of humanity. If you're a materialist, meaning you think all that there is to life is matter, there's no spirit that's immaterial that exists outside of this universe and magically comes in from some other heaven or dimension. If you were that kind of materialist, then why would the human being be totally independent of the causal nexus of the universe? 
The only way you get that is by being a non-materialist. So from the scientific point of view, a materialist scientific point of view, the dominoes are just falling one after another. And then we're just superimposing that this person could be otherwise and it's because of their bad character or their bad spirit, their evil spirit that has come to this world from some hell uh, only to create trouble and conflict. And you may say, no, 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 no. I have the feeling that I could eat now or I could make money or I could do charity or I could sit and meditate. And is it that or is it that within the autopoietic human being there is a, a thought to procreate there there is a, an urge to earn there is an urge to rest there is an urge to sleep and it seems like through some special free will I defeated all of these but maybe it could just be nature nature is naturing through the human being and sometimes it's sleep and sometimes it's work and sometimes it's aggression and sometimes it's emotion. Like the kid playing the video game in the arcade after game over, not realizing that it's game over and syncing up the movements with the controller with the demonstration, continuing to feel like it's live action or that he got a, an extra play. However, if you're not a materialist like that, which is also beautiful in its own way, well then, you know, most, most of those people think it's God that breathes the animative spirit into the, into the matter, right? And, and so what is fundamentally different about a human one day before death and the day after the death? Isn't all the matter still there? But now there's, there's no animation. And then we think that the, all this conflict is there, but what's in between all this is God's will or God's influence or the great spirit animating everything. One spirit in most traditions and most beliefs. Well, then where are we getting the, you know, the idea of, of good and evil from the othering? When people feel like they want to control another and get them to behave the way they want or to follow the will of their, their religion. To me, it's like, well, couldn't God have done that? Couldn't God have programmed instant karma into his creation or her creation? Couldn't it be that if you lie, your tongue falls out? And then, in, in, you know, more Western religious people or Abrahamic traditions will say, well, God gave you free will. Then why won't you give people <laughs> free will? Why are you, it, to me, if you try to make God's wishes, man's laws, then uh, in, in some respects, you know, it's a, it's a kind of jihad. And m most of us think, you know, j jihad is an extremist position of religion. But with validation, with love, we, we can reach this level in our meditation with our self-validation as well, that everything in the universe is within me. I'm on the spectrum of control. I'm on the spectrum of fear. In my own body, uh, in my own family, in my own relationships. And I'm not where I always was, but I can, I can see my own growth, my own progress from the anxiety and the strain in relationships to the, the revelations of peace that are coming with deeper levels of self-validation and allowing my emotions to be there and not conflating the arousal of emotion with behavior or with my character. So just a few final thoughts about self-validation. It involves allowing, you know, not judging yourself. There's a feeling there and we get really good at suppressing our feelings, recognizing, allowing, and not criticizing or judging or denying yourself. We probably invalidate ourselves more than anyone else will. When we say, I know I shouldn't feel like this anymore. I know I should be letting this go. I know I should be over this. We should all over ourselves. 
So I think the, the real healing begins with self-validation. Recognizing the autopoiesis in our own system. You have a heart and it's doing all this work. It's not what I do. It does it, right? And it self-regulates and so does my digestion. And I was talking with Mary yesterday about how the female body ovulates and I was asking about how an egg is released and learning. And, and it was so interesting to, to just realize that with an egg and with sperm, that there's more life. When I was learning about how many sperm there are and how they have a mission and how long they can live inside of a woman and how long they can live outside of the body. So you, you have all of these expressions of the system that's regenerating, that's reproducing. And superimposed on all that is the self, is the ego, is the sense that I am somewhere behind my eyes pulling the levers of all this and doing all this. I say, I do it. You know, I'm hungry. I'm eating. I'm digesting. I'm thinking right now. And we miss this, this deepest meditative insight that everything is a scaled system. Recognizing this and freeing ourselves from the othering and freeing ourselves from the sense of total independence and total doership and possession can change our ethical framework and the way that we relate to life. And I think we can start to experience for ourselves something like in the catch, where it's not just a greeting, it's, it's an awakening, it's a realization, and it's an invitation for all. <laughs>